What did it mean to be a believer 4,000 years ago? In today's episode of Doctrine for Life, Dr. Joel Beakey continues his introduction to the faithfulness and frailty of Abraham from Genesis 11, verses 26 through 32. If you would like to enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org. We need to begin our study of Abraham by looking at the world in which he lived to understand the context. Abraham lived approximately 2,165 B.C. to 1990 B.C. 175 years. So approximately 2,000 years before Jesus walked on the earth, and about 400 plus years after the flood. So that means that when Abraham was born, Noah was still alive. It actually means that Shem, the godly line, Noah's son, died after Abraham died. In fact, most of the people listed in Genesis 11 in the genealogy were still alive when Abraham was born. Abraham was actually born into the godly line of Noah and Shem. His father's name was Terah. We're told that he lived to the age of 205. Abraham had two brothers. Nahor and Haran, verse 26 tells us. One brother, Haran, had a son named Lot. Haran died before any of the family left their home area of Ur of the Chaldees. So Abraham's nephew, Lot, ended up accompanying Abraham to the promised land, as you know. The other brother, Nahor, married Milcah, according to verse 29. Now, Nahor initially stayed back in Ur when the others left and went to Haran. They're not mentioned in verse 31, are they? As going with Terah and Abraham. But later on, later on, Nahor followed the family at least to their first stopping point of Haran. For you read in Genesis 27, verse 43, that the descendants of Nahor lived in Haran. And that's where Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for Isaac. And where Jacob goes to get a wife for himself among his parents' ancestors. Abraham's wife was Sarah. Sarai first later changed to Sarah. And at this point, we learn some very sad news. As they leave for Canaan, Sarah is barren. That may explain why they were so willing to take Lot along. We learn later that Sarah was actually Abraham's half-sister. Those early days of Genesis, when there weren't many people, God allowed men to marry very close relatives to, to fill the earth. Now, given this history... Our natural tendency is to think, isn't it, that Abraham lived in a very poor area. 
Ur must have been just a very, very almost shanty town. After all, it was only a few hundred years after, after the flood. But actually, the opposite is the case. Abraham lived in a sophisticated, technological, civilized, cultural world. It's actually remarkable how quickly after the flood, we saw uh, last time, remember from Genesis 11, the, the building of the Tower of Babel, how complex it was. How quickly after the flood, society developed. There were massive building projects. And the vast Mesopotamian civilization arose between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in, 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 in a remarkable way. Now, Abraham was from the great city of Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, a city that had had longevity to it, a city that had been built up, a city that has been recently, last century, that is, excavated by archaeologists. And today, scholars estimate that in Abraham's day, there were twenty to 30,000 people living in Ur, which was a big city at that time, and the population was much less in the world. But surrounding Ur, there were also many suburbs, as we would say today, and probably about 200,000 people in the whole metropolitan area. So this is a large population that developed quickly in the centuries after the flood. Ur was situated between modern-day Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. And it was home to great buildings, to irrigation systems, to beautiful gardens. Thousands of inscribed tablets have been discovered from Abraham's day, showing a flourishing bureaucracy and a complex system of civil service. So Abraham was born into a a cultural, civilized world. Human beings were spreading over the planet to colonize it, to subdue it. Descendants of Japheth were pouring north into Europe and Asia, establishing new nations, setting up new cultures. The descendants of Ham were moving south into the vast continent of Africa. The golden age of Egyptian literature was about to begin. The pyramids, the great technological and artistic developments of the dynasties of Egypt were already flourishing. But it was also an age of rebellion. Rebellion against God. In the midst of all this cultural advance, the flood, the terrible lesson of the flood had been forgotten. Only 400 some years before, well, America has forgotten 9-11 basically in terms of repentance and humility. You see, people had forgotten that human beings were created to serve God. They were pushing God to the circumference of their lives. It was an age of humanism. People were seeking their own glory, their independence. You remember the arrogant statement in Genesis 11, Go to, let us build us a city and us a tower whose top may reach into heaven. Let us make us a name. Abraham was born into this world, technically advanced, but spiritually bankrupt. A godless, rebellious, self-confident culture. 
trying to make ends meet without God. A world in which sin was, the results of sin were evident everywhere, including Abraham's own family. In Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua says to the Israelites, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So what's happening? Well, you've got a man who's brought up in a godly line, but he's brought up in an ungodly home. He's a outwardly blessed with a rich heritage, but inwardly, his family home is hurting. They're worshiping other gods. His father gave him a sad spiritual heritage. All of us here, we also have a rich heritage. But do our homes, our individual homes reflect that? Oh, I'm sure that no one here is worshipping literal idols, but are there some homes here where you're worshipping perhaps sports, or you're worshipping the world, or you're worshipping job advancement, or you're worshipping education, and, and the children feel it, parents, that you're worshipping these things more than the living God. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed Theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. Are you giving your children a rich spiritual heritage? Well, then, too, the results of sin are evident in in Abraham's entire world. Did you notice, as I read Genesis 11, how at the beginning of the the genealogy, people lived extra 500 years and 400 years, then it was down to 300 years, then near the end it was 200 years. You see, life expectancy is rapidly going down. The results of sin are manifest. Much like today, the average homosexual, did you know that the average homosexual today lives to be lifespan 54 years of age? 54. The results of sin and the ravaging of AIDS and other diseases brought about by that kind of lifestyle is its own punishment that shortens life. And God, you see, for whatever reason, we don't understand, we don't know all the details here of why this is the case, but we do know it's attached to sin, that life is shortened. And did you notice, too, some of the consequences of sin that that, that followed in these verses? Sad things. You made an awful tragedy, don't you, in verse 28. Haran died before his father, Terah. Maybe you just read over that didn't think anything about it. Do you know that's the first time, as far as I know, the first time where a child dies? Well, of course, Adam, no, Adam and Eve faced the death of Cain. But here again, you see, the second time, let's say, that 
A child dies before a father. It's like a hammer blow, isn't it? Heron died before his father to you. How difficult it is for a parent to bury a child. How unnatural. How it speaks of the results of sin. And of course, there's here too is the barrenness of Sarah. It said so simply. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. What a hopeless world this was. So much advance outwardly, but inwardly. Corruption, barrenness, death, spiritual idolatry. A godless, outwardly flourishing society. Ignoring God, pushing Him to one side. And yet God is working. How is God working? Is he sending the flood? No, no. Is he coming down in thunder and lightning? No. He chooses one man. His name is Abraham. He says, I will call you. And I will separate you from this worldliness. And I will call you out of Ur of the Chaldees. And I will bring you my word, and you will hear it, and you will believe it, and you will obey it, and I will change you from within. And I'll put you at the center of my plan and my purposes. Thou shalt be a blessing and be blessed, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Isn't that amazing? God could come to destroy this godless society, and instead he comes and speaks to one individual, chooses him, calls him. Calls him internally, calls him sovereignly, calls him graciously, calls him personally, calls him efficaciously. Ten days from now, a Wednesday preparatory midweek service. I want to look with you at the beginning of Genesis 12 at this call of Abraham. And examine ourselves by it as well. But for now... Let me just say this. There are no reasons in Abraham for God to call him. It's all a sovereign choice. An unlikely choice. Why would God call a man from a family of idolaters whose wife had no children and determined to work through him, his covenant to all generations and all families of the earth? Why Abraham? God's sovereign grace. One commentator puts it this way, the future belongs not to Cain, nor to Lamech, nor to the generation that rejected Noah, but to this lonely elect man to whom God spoke, and to the Creator Himself who has not gone back in the purposes of His grace. God carries on. In the midst of a godless world, in the midst of human frailty, God carries on His work. Isn't that an encouragement to come up to God's house in 2007? Isn't it an encouragement in your family? God can carry on. We read in Isaiah that God speaks to a discouraged, despairing, exiled people. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him. I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. That's what God is doing. And so that leads us to our third thought. 
this morning, our closing thought. How should God's call of Abraham encourage us today? And I've got four or five reasons why this should encourage us greatly. And the first encouragement is this. The calling of Abraham tells us that there is no situation that God cannot change for the better. People make all kinds of New Year's resolutions in this past week, no doubt. And there can be a certain amount of value in having some resolutions, of course. But if you do it in your own strength and you do it thinking that you're going to change your own life for the better, it's just going to fall by the wayside, isn't it? You know that. But you see, if you turn to God, God can change you. He can change you from within. He can change your children from within. There's no situation beyond His power. That's what the call of Abraham tells us. No circumstances. Too hopeless for our God. That's amazing. And you find that again and again in parallel periods in in the world's history. The same kind of thing. Consider just with me briefly a moment the world of Jesus. Isn't it the same pattern in the first world, first century A.D.? It's a world similar to that of Abraham's world. Time of Jesus was still enjoying the most magnificent culture that had ever been on earth. The culture of classical Greece. With its amazing literature, its drama, its art. And now the world was dominated by by Rome with all its military force and its legal genius and its governmental ability. But it was a world in rebellion. Rebellion against God. A world pushing God away. A world where human beings were exalted, where the very Roman emperor was going to be worshipped, was a dark and evil world. A world of homosexuality and sin. Romans 1, a world of abortions and euthanasia was happening already then. It was a bloodstained world, a cruel world, a discouraged world, despairing world, a dark world. No prophet was coming in Israel. And then in the midst of that world, what did God do? He brought a baby into this world in a stable in Bethlehem. That's what he did. And he began to work in the hearts of Galilean fishermen in a Jewish home in Tarsus and Gentile homes in Corinth and Rome and Asia Minor and began to prepare people and shape them and bring them to the point where they could hear his gospel. The gospel went out to the ends of the world. And people were saved. Christianity was born. And we are the recipients today. That gospel began in a world no better than ours. So what's the message? The message is God can work today in our world. He can work in you. He can work in this church. Let us be encouraged. He's an almighty God of grace. Secondly, how encouraging it is when we consider that God is, is working today. As He has always worked. He is working. Think of our world today. Our world is parallel to Abraham's and to, to Jesus' world in many ways. We too live in a very culturally astute society, don't we? Everything we can imagine technologically is at our fingertips We live in comfort. We enjoy abundance. We travel the earth. We communicate to the ends of the earth in a matter of seconds. 
This is a world that is proud of its advancement, its cleverness, its wisdom, its sophistication. But we too are in rebellion against God. It's a world where God is ignored. There's so much to discourage us. Advances of Islam. How strong they are over in Europe and coming stronger in America. Did you see the picture in the paper this past week? I don't know if you wept over it, but one of the congressmen standing there with Nancy Pelosi having a copy of Thomas Jefferson's Koran, the Islamic Bible, and being sworn into office on the Koran. America! Don't we have reason to be discouraged? And both of them smiling. Tragic. Think of what Jefferson and our founding fathers would have thought. It was just a copy of a book in his library for reference. And to think that a congressman 200 some years later would swear on it. In his oath of office. Tragic. This is a world where it's falling apart, isn't it? A world where life is threatened, where millions of babies are cut to pieces in their mother's womb. A world of personal barrenness, when people are feeling their lives are empty and pointless. A world actually of actually less culture than Jesus' day. The 20th century, our past century, will go down in world history as a century of little great music and little great literature and little great art. So there's much to discourage us as we, as we begin a new year of Sabbath. But you see, what God is saying to us this morning is, consider Abraham, my friend, the father of the faithful. Look to Abraham, your father. God works today in the same way, quietly, working with people and working in people, unlikely people in unlikely places. F.B. Meyer has this wonderful comment. Do not despair for the future of the world. Souls are still being trained in the bosom of the Sanhedrin. Luther's in the cloisters of papal Rome. Abraham's under the shadows of great heathen temples. You see, if you had looked at the world of Abraham's day, you would have said, this is hopeless, absolutely hopeless. But it wasn't. Am I talking to people here this morning who look at your own life? And you look at your family? Perhaps you look at the church? You look at our society? You look at the newspapers? And you say, this is hopeless. Why face the future? I fear for 2007. I fear all the idolatry, the rebellion, the barrenness, the sorrow, the disappointment. I'm tempted to despair. God says, don't. Remember, look to Abraham, your father. Look what I did for him, in him. Look what came out of him. By my grace. I will still work the same way today. My cause shall not fail. Thirdly, how encouraging it is when we consider what God is able and willing to do through us, through our families, through our congregation. One thing a pastor does, and I guess all pastors do this, you 
You speculate at times. You, you, you sit and you meditate and you speculate. What would happen? Everybody in the church would really be converted, be on fire for the Lord, and be full of zeal. What could God do through us and through the church? Sometimes I think about that for young people especially. Well, just if every young person in our church were converted, what would happen? What would happen if they all loved the Lord? If they all talked to their parents and all talked to their friends. They went to the Christian school. They went to Plymouth School. And they just openly talked to one another freely with no reservation about the wonders of serving God and how great He is and what a wonderful God. What, a, what would happen if everyone would be a, a participant of this blessing? I shall bless thee and thou shalt be a blessing. What, a, what an amazing thing it would be. Well, would the whole city of Grand Rapids be changed, perhaps? <laughs> it's a wonderful thought. Why should we be discouraged? God can begin with one man. Look into Abraham, your father. Look what he is already doing in our church. Oh, I know there's problems. But look at all the good things that God is doing in the church, in the church's ministries. The tens of thousands of people being impacted one way or another through this church. It's happening right now. God is working. But God could do so much more. And he's willing to do so much more. And so we ought to be encouraged when we put our hand on the plow. We have to keep it there. We ought not to look back. Except to look back to his grace, that's okay. To look to Abraham, your father, for I called him alone. Alone. It was just one man. You're just one person. You say, what can God do through me? God can do a great deal through you. When you're brought to believe and to repent and to obey and to follow him, and he says to you, I will bless you and you will be a blessing, there's no telling how God will use you. That's encouraging. And then fourthly, how encouraging it is to consider that the Lord's covenantal line of saving grace shall stand. His election is sure. He will continue to build and preserve his church. God's call came to Abraham in the midst of a rebellious world. But Abraham was in the godly line. God came back to the godly line. Notice verse 10 begins. These are the generations. These are the generations of Shem. That's the whole structure of the book of Genesis. Perhaps you remember that. Ten times, these are the generations, it says. Ten different sections of Genesis. And you see it again later in this chapter. These are the generations of Terah, verse 27. Now God's focusing, you see, on a particular family in the covenant line. So what God is saying is, I'm going to fulfill my purposes through the generations. I'm going to have respect for my covenant. I will be a covenant-keeping God. And He has been to the end of the world. And it's this covenant-keeping character of God that is worthy to be noticed. You know, if Moses was a secular writer, he would have written the rest of Genesis all about Nimrod and the kingdom of Babylon and the Chaldeans and so on. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, the attention is given 
to the covenant fulfillment of God. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.